pray. Lord, once again we come into your presence, having read your word, having prayed through a part of your word, having sung your truth, and now, Father, we come to read your word and hear what I trust is an accurate understanding of your word. And so, Father, we pray that on the one hand that you would protect us from error, on the other, Lord, that you would fill us up with your truth, that you would fill us to the fullness of God, and that we, Father, would have a heart to examine ourselves and not to take lightly our relationship with you. Help us to be like Paul, who both evaluated his life and longed for the reward. And may we find ourselves doing the same in spirit and in truth, Lord, for your glory and for our own joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here, uh, whether you're in this room or down the hall. And if you uh, are not familiar with where we are in the scriptures, we are in 2 Timothy. We're getting really close to the end. I think this is the 20th message in 2 Timothy, and maybe we'll be done next week. But if you could take your Bible out and turn to 2 Timothy, as we near the end of this final letter of his life, we find Paul reflecting on his 30 years of ministry as a servant of Jesus Christ. I think it's safe to say that ever since the Damascus Road experience where he was suddenly arrested by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Christ he persecuted, from that moment on, Paul was absolutely devoted to serving this his new master, the Lord and from that moment on, he was never nonchalant about the mission that King Jesus had sent him on. Every day of his life, he pushed himself forward for the gospel, for the ministry of the word. Like, a, like an Olympic athlete pushing for the gold, so did Paul push every day toward his goal, his goal of making the gospel known to the ends of the earth. And so as he pens these final words to his young protege, Timothy, he begins to reflect on the reality that his long, long race is just about over. By God's grace, he's managed to stay on track. He's crossed and cleared every hurdle. He's followed the rules. He's defeated his opponents. And now as he sits, as it were, on the bench on the other side of the finish line, it occurs to him that his race is over. His race is done. Historically, we know that the other side of the finish line for him was actually a dark prison cell. This was not retirement for him. He didn't get a nice condominium at the end of his race. No, he got the deepest, darkest jail cell in the maritime prison. If you've, ever see, if you've never seen it, get on the internet and look it up. It, it is horrific, the hole in the ground that he probably lived in. He knows his time is short, days, weeks, maybe a month, maybe two. By the first of spring, he will surely be enjoying 
his reward in heaven. And honestly, now that he's reached the end, there is nothing for Paul to do but simply to wait for the moment when he will receive the victor's crown. But for now, he has pen in hand, and he is talking to Timothy about the things that matter to him. He's not boasting about his career, though he certainly had good reason to it, to do so. He isn't depressed, he isn't licking his wounds or pleading for deliverance or rescue like I would probably do in that situation. No, Paul was taking the time to write a letter. His mission may be over, but he knows Timothy's mission is about to begin in a new way. Young Timothy is slated to take over where the Apostle Paul leaves off. And so Paul takes a minute to scratch onto the parchment a few words about a subject that he rarely spoke about, namely himself. Now before I tell you any more of this story, let's take a moment to look over Paul's shoulder, as it were, and see exactly what he is writing to Timothy. So take your Bible with me and stand, and we will read the Word of God. And I'm going to start, uh, the message really begins at verse 6, but let's get some context here, beginning with verse 1. Follow along with me now, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom... Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. As for you... Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course, the race. And now, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who love his appearing. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you may have noticed that I accidentally skipped over, I have kept the faith, but that's an important phrase as well. Verses 5 through 8 offer a short but marvelous testimony of a life that was genuinely pleasing to the Lord. If 2 Corinthians 5, 9 is right and applies to all of us, then our ambition, our highest ambition should be that in everything we will be pleasing to the Lord. Why did Paul write this? Why did Paul talk about his life this way? Well, the obvious answer is he wanted his testimony to inspire young Timothy because Timothy was about to take over. Before the Lord, he was going to have a big work to do. 
And what better way to inspire such devotion to the Lord than through the testimony of one who had faithfully done it himself and finished well? Now, somebody may ask, what specifically does this text teach that will help us remain faithful and finish well, if that indeed is the point? In the text before us, I see actually two personal disciplines that are essential to remaining faithful and finishing well. Number one, regularly evaluate your race. Now, the text does not say regularly, but he is obviously evaluating, at least for Timothy, perhaps himself, his race. It's the end, and I would suggest it would be good for us to do it now, before the end, and to do it regularly. Ask yourself, how's my race? And secondly, not only regularly evaluate your race, but secondly, frequently anticipate the reward. So let's look at the first one first. Regularly evaluate your race. Verse 6 tells us what we already know. Paul's about to end. His life is about to end, and he knows it. This is an important statement in Paul's argument in this whole chapter and even connected back to the previous chapter. The question is, why should Timothy preach the word? Why should he do it in season and out of season? Why, why should he do it when everything is right in the world and, when, and also when everything is wrong? Why should he do it when he feels good and when he feels bad? When he's sick and when he's healthy? when people are for him or people are against him, whether he's with friends or whether alone? Why should he preach the word in season and out of season? Why should he reprove, rebuke, exhort? Why should he be willing to suffer for the gospel? I mean, after all, wasn't that the apostle's job? That was his calling, not Timothy's. Timothy was a helper. The word for here, which is actually the first word in verse 6, points us to the answer. The word for indicates purpose, cause, reason behind what Paul is saying. Why should Timothy commit to serving the Lord at this level, almost an apostolic level? Answer? Here's the answer. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. This is Paul's argument. Timothy, you're about ready to assume my position. Preach the word in season and out of season because I'm leaving. And it won't be long. The reason Timothy must be faithful in all the ways that Paul had been faithful is that Timothy was about to take his place. Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And that sounds unfamiliar to us, perhaps, the whole bit about a drink offering. We don't live in a culture that is based on sacrifices, animal sacrifices. In Paul's day, the Jewish temple was still in full service. And also, there were all kinds of pagan cults that likewise, and in a counterfeit manner, would also offer animals as sacrifices. And whenever a burnt sacrifice was offered, 
in the temple of the Lord, the custom was to lay the dead animal on the flames of the altar, and then at the end of that ceremony, they would pour an offering of strong drink onto the animal, into the fire, and it would make a sweet smell, a soothing aroma to the Lord. And Paul is saying the sacrifice has already been laid on the fire. It's for the drink offering to be poured out. That's, that's next. The, the drink offering is just about to be poured out. And that's me. I'm not the sacrifice. I'm, I'm just the drink offering at the end. Paul is, about to execu- Paul is about to be executed by Nero. And so he says, the time of my departure is at hand. My departure comes from a term that means to loosen or to undo as with a rope. And Paul, like all of us, has been bound to this present world like a ship to its moorings. Death, then, would be a release. This is There's a whole theology of death in the Bible and how God wants us to view death. And this is one of the key verses. This is the way Paul viewed his death. It's a being released. It's being unbound, as it were, to this world. Albert Barnes comments that the true idea of death is that that of loosening the bands that confined us to this present world, of setting us free and permitting the soul to go forth as with expanded sails on its eternal voyage. With such a view of death, Barnes writes, why should a Christian fear to die? That had to be Paul's perspective. And Paul's not saying that he is some kind of sacrifice, but simply that he is, there is really nothing for him to do now but wait to die. He would be sacrificed only in the sense that with all sacrifice, his life would be ended by someone else. And so the apostles' life work had reached its completion. As Joshua had followed Moses and Solomon had followed David and Elisha, he followed Elijah, so now Timothy's job was to follow Paul, to pick up the mantle of Paul. The time was at hand. John R. W. Stott describes it like this, already the anchor is weighed, the ropes are slipped, and the boat is about to sail for another shore. Now, before the great adventure of his new voyage begins, he looks back over his ministry of 30 years, he describes it factually, not boastfully, in three terse expressions. And here are those expressions. Number one, first, I have fought a good fight. I fought a good fight. The word fight here means to agonize. It's, it's agonizomai in the Greek. To agonize as in a contest, not as in illness, but as in a contest. Paul is using the vocabulary of an athlete. He may be thinking about the wrestling matches of the Ithmian Games. One of these days, I, I need to do a study and share it with you. And Paul's love of sports. He frequently spe- speaks of going to the games and watching the sports. So he might be thinking about a wrestling match here. 
It may be a metaphor for his approach to remaining faithful to the Lord. Remaining faithful to the Lord for him was like engaging in a fight. Maybe a boxing fight. Maybe in a wrestling match. When it was his time to wrestle and fight the world, the flesh, and the devil, he made every effort and did everything possible to win. He did everything possible to win. In 1 Timothy 6.12, he commands Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Timothy, don't be lazy. Don't think that that things are just going to happen for you. You've got to work at it. You've got to fight for it. You've got to fight for purity. You've got to fight for joy. Here he uses the same language to describe his own approach to faithfulness. Literally, his words are these. I have agonized with a good agony. I have fought a good fight. If you're going to remain faithful and finish well, there there will be days when you really need to fight. There are going to be days that aren't too difficult. There are going to be other days that are really, really difficult. And you will be tempted in ways that you think you can hardly bear. Paul is implying here, Timothy, fight the good fight. Fight for it. This is especially true when you're young or after you've experienced tragedy or maybe after a significant disappointment. In those moments, if your approach to the Christian life is more like floating down the river, the lazy river, in a blown-up inner tube rather than a wrestling match, then you're in serious trouble. And you are going to be no match for your opponent. The second term he uses, he says, I have fought a good fight. And then he says, I have finished my race. There it is again, another sports analogy. His first analogy of how to pursue faithfulness to the Lord is a wrestling match. The second is is the foot race. In fact, the word here for race literally means to run. To run. And Paul seemed to be uh, a man who, I mean, if it were in our day, he'd be watching the game every Sunday afternoon. In his letter to the church of Corinth, which we read here a little earlier, he was clearly concerned about the possibility that the Corinthians might veer off the track and disqualify themselves. And so he writes this to them. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box, there's that fighting idea again. I box in a way as not beating the air. I discipline my body and make it my slave so that as I preach to others, I myself may not be disqualified. The sports analogy is all through this. Hard work, suffering, denying what his, the, the impulses of his body, knowing that there's a possibility that he could be disqualified. You don't play by the rules. You get off the track. You cheat. 
Or, or you just don't work hard, you don't exercise, you don't plan, you don't practice. You're going to be disqualified. You want to know how Paul remained faithful and finished well? This is his secret. He exerted an enormous amount of, catch these words carefully, grace-empowered effort. It's always by the grace of God. If any of us crosses the finish line, it will be by the grace of God. If you successfully battle any temptation, it will be by the power of God's grace. The Apostle Paul, by grace, exercised self-control. He set his eyes on the goal. He refused to be the slave of the impulses of his body. Does that describe your approach to the Christian life? Paul was determined to finish well. In fact, he mentions it again in Acts chapter 20 when he is headed back to Jerusalem and he stops in Miletus and he meets with the elders of Ephesus and he says this, I do not consider my life any account dear to me so that I may finish my course, my race. My life is not my concern. Finishing my race is my concern. Apparently, Paul often thought about how he was progressing on his race. Do we? Do you? Do you from time to time evaluate how you're doing on your race? How faithful you are being to Christ? He's calling on your life? Or, or is your plan just, I'm going to show up to church on Sunday? And I'm going to go home and live my own life, and I'm going to show up to church on Sunday. Maybe give a little in the offering. It doesn't sound like running the race, as if to win. This was Paul's concern. And the third term he says here, Paul declared, I have kept the faith. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my race. And I have kept the faith. It's almost like Paul couldn't come up with an analogy for this one, so he just steps back into reality. I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith. And you know, beloved, I, I'm not sure I've ever thought very seriously about this statement before last week or two weeks ago when Josh Harris abandoned the faith. Who would have dared to think that such a young man, a young Christian leader, such as he could publicly turn his back on Christ. When I started studying this for this Sunday, a couple weeks ago, and I read, I have kept the faith, it hit me hard. How many people that we know will end their race and have not kept the faith? At the end of their life, they abandon it. Or in the middle of their life, in their prime, they abandon it. It's a frightening picture. And yet it's one that is used again and again and again. Different words, different ways of communicating it. But the warning is all over the scriptures. That you could shipwreck your faith. You could be disqualified. You could abandon the faith. Paul says, I have kept the faith. By the way, the faith here, the faith generally is a technical term meaning the gospel. It is the faith. 
It was entrusted to Paul. It's now being entrusted to Timothy. And the question is, will he keep it? Will he guard it? First for himself, but then for the whole church and for a world of sinners who desperately needs it. And perhaps after living a Christian life for a few decades, people may assume that the spiritual clay is sufficiently hardened so that the possibility of such a person abandoning his faith is non-existent. It's just not true. You who stand, be careful lest you fall. Why did Paul say, I have kept the faith? Wasn't that a given? Paul apparently didn't think so. He had seen a number of other Christian leaders who shipwrecked their faith. He was an apostle, was not an apostle when Jesus was in his ministry, but, but you know who was? Judas was an apostle. And he abandoned the faith. He abandoned Christ. He abandoned the gospel. After three years of walking with him, I mean, forget about going to church. He lived with Jesus. He saw the miracles. The signs and the wonders did not create faith in him. And, and Paul says, just two verses later, verse 10, he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. I did a little study on Demas. Back in Colossians 4, Paul mentions Demas in a list of faithful brothers like Dr. Luke, the physician, right? In Philemon, Paul mentions Demas with John Mark and Aristarchus, whom Paul called my fellow workers. What happened? What happened to Demas? I mean, he traveled with the Apostle Paul. He went everywhere the Apostle Paul want, went. He was hanging out with Luke all the time. The answer is simple. Instead of wrestling with the impulse to love the things of the world, instead of running from it, Demas fell in love with the world and the pleasures it offers to anyone who will embrace her. Read the early chapters of Proverbs. We see this again and again and again. The warnings, the warnings. And so it's no small thing for Paul to announce, I have kept the faith. Now, clearly Paul is not saying that by my own strength and power and righteousness I have kept the faith. But by the grace of God, he kept the faith. And he was fully engaged all the way through his race. It's no small thing to say, I have kept the faith. How does one keep the faith? You keep it by immersing yourself in the word of God. In Psalm 119.50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. Jason showed me this week that in the ESV uh, study notes it says, your, or footnotes, your word has kept me alive. In Psalm 119.93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me, or for by them you have kept me alive. In Psalm 119.107, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me, or you have kept me alive. You want to know how to stay alive? And maybe that's how I, what I should have 
called this sermon, Staying Alive. <laughs> How do you stay alive? You keep your heart in the book. You keep your heart fixed on Jesus because of what you learn from the book, from God's word. You want to know how David maintained his faithfulness and finished well? David, who wrote these Psalms, Psalm 119, how did he remain faithful? God's word kept him alive. It is God's worth, not signs and wonders. It is God's worth that creates faith in your heart. You want to know how Paul lived through all the hardships and disappointments of his life and successfully finished his race? God's word kept him alive. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And isn't that the context here? I mean, verse 16, all scripture of of chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God. Your word has kept me alive. This is part of what it means to evaluate your race. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light into our path. If we fail to walk in the light of God's word, we will surely veer off and be disqualified. You show me someone who's veering off into things that no believer should be veering into, and they present it as something that they can't control, I'll tell you what's happening. They have neglected the clear teaching of Scripture. The word of God is not a light to their, a lamp to their feet and a light into their path. Proverbs 5 says, do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That means acknowledge, God, your word is a better rule. It's a better guide than my impulses. Paul fought the good fight. This is how he remained faithful. Paul, on the other hand, as opposed to Demas, as opposed to the others who were listed here in 2 Timothy and then back in 1 Timothy, he fought the good fight. He finished his race. And he died with his faith and love for Christ fully intact. Don't you love that when you see a senior saint who's nearing death, and all they can talk about is Jesus. There seems to be no fear, and they'll tell you, not afraid, not afraid. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. That day may be soon. Praise God, even so come, Lord Jesus. He was able to say, I remain faithful and true. I have rendered fidelity to my Lord and Master. To be sure, not even the Apostle Paul did it perfectly. It's not about perfection. It's about direction. He, too, was a flawed follower of Christ. Nevertheless, and by the way, that's why he could call himself the chief of sinners. Nevertheless, he finished well. That gives me hope. Gives me hope. The chief of sinners finished well. 
gives me hope that this sinner might be able to finish well. Is your ambition to do the same? I suggest you take some time to periodically evaluate your race. Have you begun to coast a little? Has your love for Christ become to, begun to cool, like with the case in Revelation of the church of Ephesus? Does the word of God seem less nourishing and instructive? Are you, are you less prone to read it? until you feel guilty, and then you go read a little bit to soothe your conscience so you can take a vacation from it for a little while until your conscience bothers you again. That's a bad sign. Has it been a long time since you shared the gospel with someone? Is prayer no longer the delight of your soul? Have you pulled back from serving God's people in the church or your neighbors or you don't know, perhaps it's time to evaluate your race. The finish line may be closer for you than you think. So if you want to live faithfully and finish well, number one, evaluate your race. Number two, Paul frequently anticipated the reward. And I am going to argue here that it's not just Paul, it's everybody who taught in the New Testament. Notice at the end of his life, Paul isn't filled with doubts. He didn't say, gee, I wonder, you know, boy, I'm getting awfully close to the finish line. I wonder if there really is an afterlife. Or I wonder if I really will be welcomed home by the Lord. No, he is emphatic. He's unwavering in these last days of his life. He's unwavering in his confidence that the Lord who called him will also deliver on his promised reward. He says, henceforth, there is laid up for me. There is laid up for me. And here's how he puts it. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. This was his hope. This is what he was striving for. 1 Corinthians calls it a wreath. Here he calls it a crown. The word laid up means laid away or reserved. It's set aside for him. His name is on it. This word appeared not only in athletic competitions, but also... It was used in ancient literature of an award made to loyal subjects by ancient kings. There's no such thing as a perfect subject, but all of us can be loyal subjects who do the king's bidding in this world. As Paul sat in that old cold prison cell, I suspect he thought with a smile, finally, my fight is finished. My race is done. The faith, that is, the gospel, remains intact. And I've got nothing to do but to wait for my reward. I don't know how that sets with you, but I can't wait for that. I can't wait for that. To know that your time is done. I remember reading in David Brainerd's uh, life and Diary, 
And he was trudging through the woods of New Jersey and Pennsylvania and New York, preaching. Nobody wanted to hear what he had to say. And after a while, the, the great awakening among the Indians broke out in Cross Weeks in New Jersey, uh, walking distance from where I grew up. And, um, and one day he sees a doctor because he'd been so sick, he'd been coughing up blood. And on occasion, he could only preach from laying down on a bed. And hundreds of Indians would come and listen to him cough and preach and cough and preach. And the doctor came and he said, you know, you have the consumption, which could be anything, tuberculosis or anything. And he said, oh, I was so glad. I was so glad to get the news because I thought maybe I was just being lazy. <laughs> and here he was about to finish his race. And there was nothing but joy. Amy Carmichael, just remembering my biographies here. Amy Carmichael was told by her doctor, um, you're very sick and you are going to die. And she looks at the doctor with a smile and she says, don't tease me with good news. <laughs> this, is, this is the response of one who has run the race who has set his affections entirely on the prize, the wreath, the award before him. And by the way, sometimes this promised reward, sometimes it goes by different names. Just in the New Testament, I didn't think we had time to look at the Old Testament as well, but you can kind of do your own study, and, and, and maybe this first will launch you into the Old Testament. Sometimes it's referred to as the inheritance for example, Paul in Galatians 3.18 calls it the inheritance that is based on a promise of grace rather than a reward for keeping the law. In Ephesians, he teaches that we already have the down payment of that inheritance in the Holy Spirit who indwells you. In fact, he says at the same passage, in that same passage, that he wants all of us to know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now also he exhorted the brothers in Colossae to work hard as unto the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance. This is very, very practical. Why should you work hard when you're at work? Answer, because there's a reward there's a wreath, there's an inheritance waiting for you. Do you ever think about that? Are you ever motivated by the promise of the reward? Israel was supposed to be motivated by the promise of blessing. That's why Jesus, in his first sermon, started it off with one word, blessed. It's covenant language. Where God promised Israel, if you love me, and if you obey me, I will bless your coming in and your going out. I'll bless your wives and your children. Your herds will multiply. You will live in a land of milk and honey. That means uh, milk, like many cows and goats or whatever you can get milk from. And many bees, right? Honey can only thrive in a place where there are flowers and I mean, it just goes on. It's not milk and honey. It's all that makes the milk and honey if you will be faithful. But if you turn your back on me and embrace other gods, 
your sorrows will multiply. And I'll curse your coming in and I'll curse your going out. Jesus' first sermon, the very first word, he came to announce, blessed are you. Blessed are you. This is the inheritance. This is the reward. This is the promise. On the other hand, just like the Old Testament, Paul frequently warns people that their persistent, sinful behavior is often a clear indicator that, listen carefully to his words, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus said it. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 6. He says it again in Galatians chapter 5, immediately before the fruit of the Spirit. Those who live like this, persistent, unrepentant sin, and he lists the sins, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if the kingdom of God is your inheritance, rejoice. Set your affections on the promise, the reward, the wreath, the inheritance. And sometimes it's called an inheritance, sometimes it's called the prize. To the Corinthians, he said, Do you not know that those who run the race all run, but only one will receive the what? The prize, or you could put in here the wreath, which is what the ESV says. So run in such a way that enables you to win. And he warned the church in Colossae not to allow anyone to defraud them of their prize by turning their hearts away to religious things that are not consistent with the gospel, like the worship of angels and like asceticism and mysticism and legalism. Those are the three things he mentions in Colossae. And most famously, Paul said in his letter to the Philippians, forgetting the things that are behind and reaching for what lies ahead. Here's Paul, a Monday morning athlete, right? Imagining himself to be this athlete. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching or straining toward what lies ahead. I press toward the what? The prize. The prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's the upward call? It's the image of an athlete being called up to the platform. And, and the ribbon, the ring, I mean, not the ring, the, uh, in Super Bowl it's a ring, Right? the medal or the wreath being placed on him. It's the prize. Paul lived for the prize. And finally, Paul sometimes refers to God's promise as a reward. And maybe in your small groups this week, you can think of other biblical terms that point to this as well. But he, he frequently referred to it as the reward. When he wrote to the Corinthians, he repeatedly reminded them of the promised reward. No doubt, he got that terminology from Jesus himself. He said to those who were persecuted for his sake, these words, you're persecuted? Blessed are you. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. And the author of Hebrews speaks of the reward as, as basic to the Christian life. He wrote this, he who comes to God must, two things here, must believe that God exists, right? Believe that he is, but that's not the only thing you should believe. If you believe that he is, you must also believe that he is what? The rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 
I tell you, it's everywhere in Scripture. It's everywhere in Scripture. Uh, Even this morning as I was reviewing and adding and subtracting some things from my notes, uh, I wrote a question in your your small group questions. And um, the question is, I think, something like, how should a athlete, how should you as a Christian respond to difficulty and trial? Like an athlete has to respond to difficulty and trial. And I thought about that question, and you know what? Scripture came to mind. Hebrews 11, all discipline, and by the word there, that's training. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, but in the end it yields the peaceful fruit of, what's the next word? Righteousness. It's what Paul is talking about, the crown of righteousness, the reward of righteousness. And the author of Hebrews speaks of that reward as as basic to the Christian life. If you believe in God, believe also this, that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And Paul is saying, I have diligently, I have diligently seeked him. Not perfectly, not perfectly. But I have diligently sought him. And now I have nothing to do but wait for the reward. I take that to mean if you don't believe that God, God rewards his faithful followers, then perhaps you don't really know God. Now, maybe you say you know God because you've heard something about him, but you don't know him. Beloved, this is Paul's secret to faithfulness. This is what kept Paul motivated to press on to the finish, the finish line and to do it well. God has promised us an incomparable reward in heaven for faithfulness on earth. That is not to say it can be earned. No, 10,000 times no. The God who gives us the grace to persevere is the God who gives us the grace of the final reward, the inheritance, the prize, the reward, consistent, which, which consists of eternal grace and graces from God toward those whom he loves. To those who are persecuted, for Christ's sake, Jesus says, rejoice for your reward in heaven is great, Matthew 5, 12. To those who suffer, there's the promise of an eternal weight of glory that is far beyond comparison to the suffering you have endured, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. To those who love strangers, Jesus promises reward. To those who give generously, the Father who sees you in secret will reward you, reward you, reward you openly. And those who love their enemies, their reward will be great. And it just goes on and on and on and on. And Paul's at the end of his life and he's looking back and he's saying, well... I wasn't a perfect specimen of faithfulness. I think I finished well. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. And now there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. A crown of righteousness. Beloved, perhaps our lack of motivation to take risks, to show radical 
love to strangers, to share the gospel with the lost, to give generously, to stand for what is right, to pray earnestly, to lay out our lives for the kingdom of God, and perhaps we've lost sight of the inheritance. Perhaps you've lost sight of the promised reward, the prize that God will give to all who finish well. Faith intact. Paul never forgot this. He was absolutely motivated by the promise of reward. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, he declares, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? If there's no reward for a life like I have lived, then the way I live was foolish. Can you say that? The way I'm living today is foolish if there's no resurrection, if there's no promised inheritance, reward. Paul's hope was not at all in this life. It was in the promise that in the end, Christ's people will be duly rewarded for their faithfulness. After all, it was Jesus who said, behold, I am coming quickly, and my what? Reward. Come on, you, you know that verse. <laughs> Revelation twenty two twelve. This is the end of the book. The end of the book. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to each man according to what he has done. Your works matter. Your faithfulness matters. Whether or not you fight the good fight or run a good race matters to God. It should matter to you. What exactly is the reward? Well, it's called many things in the Bible, but for Paul, it was the crown of righteousness. It is the crown for those who lived righteous lives. If you read in the Psalms what David says, deal with me according to my righteousness. He's not saying that he's perfect. He's saying, Lord, I've really fought to keep your word. I've really fought to obey your word. Didn't do it perfectly. But I was serious about it. And even that, even that level of righteousness needs to be purified by Christ and replaced by his righteousness. It is a crown for those who lived righteous lives, as God defines it, and it is the reward of final righteousness that is granted on the basis of grace and received by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus will make, he will make us finally and perfectly righteous. I mean, don't you long for that day? You don't have to weep over your sin anymore or feel like such an idiot because you did it again. Don't you long for that day? I long for that day. Long for that day. To him who is forgiven much, he loves much, and he longs for much from Christ. Jesus will make us finally and perfectly righteous. What a promise. 
In the book of Revelation, he describes it like this, that when we arrive, he will wrap us in robes of what? Righteousness. His righteousness. And we will be dressed in perfect righteousness just as Jesus is righteous. In the end, the Lord, the righteous judge, Paul says, I think as opposed to Nero, the unrighteous judge, who has unrighteously condemned Paul to death. No, no, no. The righteous judge will give me that crown on that day. And Paul knows that day will soon come. There's an even more glorious truth here, I think, at the end. That righteousness, whether seen as a crown or a robe, will be, Paul says, not only for me, not only for apostles, sinful apostles, but also for the sinful saints. To all who have loved his appearing. Now this is really interesting to me. Notice that Paul does not say that the crown of righteousness will also be given to those who believe. It's not what he says here. Look at the verse which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who were faithful, all those who ran the race, all, the, all those who, who kept the faith. He doesn't say that. I mean, that would have been perfectly consistent with what he has just said, but he doesn't say it. No, he says, it will be given to all those who, what? Love his appearing. You know, I think when the world hears us talking about Jesus returning, they don't like that. They don't like that. It's weird. It's goofy. And if it's true, they, if they think it might be true, they hate it. They hate it. Remember, remember Martin Luther? And somebody said to him, do you love God? He says, love God. Sometimes I hate him so fearful so fearful not for us <laughs> the thought of his appearing Lord come we're not afraid of that we love that we love you come there isn't anything we'd love more than for you to come even so come Lord Jesus that was what John said in the end right all those who love his Appearing. I think John Piper is right when he explains that while it is true that Paul is being rewarded for his faithfulness, he wants to remind us that the very core of our faith is wanting Jesus, desiring Jesus, craving deep fellowship with Jesus, and craving personal face-to-face -face fellowship with Jesus as soon as possible. Faith is not merely accepting facts about Jesus. Anybody can say, I believe that Jesus was a real person, a real teacher. And he was hated by the Jews and they killed him on a cross and, and probably even rose again. That's different. It's different. Having a doctrinal statement is different than loving Jesus. Faith is not merely accepting certain facts about him. 
and is loving him. And I have told you, congregation, this as long as I've been preaching here, John chapter 8, Jesus told the Pharisees, if God were truly your father, you would love me. You would love me. Faith is not merely accepting the facts. It's loving him. It's longing to be in his presence. Such people love the prospect of his appearing. In fact, his appearing is, I would submit to you, it is our reward. It's not about a wreath. It's not about a prize. It's not about an inheritance. All of that is simply other words for Jesus. When you appear in heaven, what do you look forward to when you go to heaven? If you look forward, I mean, the main thing that you really look forward to, is it streets of gold? Is it seeing angels? Is it being reunited to loved ones? Listen, what should excite you more than anything else is when you get there, you will see him. And he will see you. And he will reward you with his eternal presence. He told Abraham, am I not your great reward? Did he not say to Israel, you all get inheritance except for the Levites because I am their inheritance. I am their inheritance. Is Jesus your inheritance? Is he the reward that motivates you to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Is he the prize? Is he the wreath? This is what Paul is driving at. You want to live faithfully and finish well? Then do this. Regularly evaluate your race. And frequently anticipate your reward. I would just say one thing, all eyes up here for a moment. You may be here today, and you know nothing of this reward. Maybe you've heard about it, and you have no hope. In your heart of hearts, you know it's not for you. It's not for you. I have two words for you. Wake up. Wake up. Why do you come and pour more and more condemnation upon yourselves by arriving at church week after week and hearing this message and you don't respond to God? Wake up! He's calling you. He's calling you to repent and believe. To believe and keep on believing. To repent and keep on repenting, knowing that there's a reward If you will repent today, if you will come to him and say, God, the only thing I have to offer you is my sin, would you please accept me anyway? Based on the merits of Jesus' righteousness and his bloody death on the cross, which should have been my punishment, but it was yours because you took it for me. God, forgive me for, God, forgive me for rejecting you all these years. Give life to my heart. God, if you exist, show me. Create faith in my heart. I wish to believe. And I wish to be changed. And an honest prayer, an honest request from the Lord, he will not cast you out.
He will not turn away. I plead with you. Wake up and believe. Let's pray. Lord, only you can do that. The only reason Paul, the only reason Paul was a believer, he hated you. But one day you arrested him. And he found in his heart a love for Christ where there was once only hate. May that be true, perhaps in the lives of some who are hearing my voice now. It would only be by your grace, by your power, by your might. We'll praise you for it. And we give you thanks, Lord, for this message, for the promised reward, which is Jesus himself. Amen.